You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are in Psalm 9 tonight, so we're doing 9, 10, and 11 today. But obviously we won't be going in a verse-by-verse format, we'll we'll be looking uh, at different sections, but we will read the whole lot. So as we enter into Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, uh, we will sort of encounter some fairly tough aspects, I'll be honest, there's some quite uh, testing things in these Psalms. But on the other hand, there are also things we, we can relate to in many ways. Let me just pray before we get into the word. Father, we just thank you so much for your word now. We pray that your word would be magnified, and through that, Lord, we would be encouraged, edified, and equipped for service, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're seeing here, we're going to look at David. David is the author of all these psalms. Even though one is not named, most people assume it's David. I'll tell you why as we go through. But he is looking for vindication from God um, as his enemies are slandering him, uh, persecuting him, and he actually praises God for God's righteousness in judging the wicked. Now in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, and in the Latin tradition, Psalm 9 and 10 are a single psalm, so they don't separate them, Psalm 9 and 10. And the reason they do that is because in Hebrew, these are what are known as the first acrostic psalms. So if you looked at this in a Hebrew text, you would see every stanza, every verse would begin with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it goes all the way through. Psalm 9 has the first half and Psalm 10 has the second half. It's one of the beautiful characteristics of Hebrew poetry. It's one of these things why we know we're dealing with a poetic book in the Psalms. Obviously, it's all lost on us in English, but that is one of the reasons why. However, there is very good reason to separate them too. They do stand alone. So let's jump into Psalm 9. Verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And if you really wanted to sum up the book of Psalms in one line, it's that very first line there. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. For me, that's uh, really the heart of the book of Psalms. It's a continued theme that we will see crop up as we work our way through this book. God's people are to, are to be a thankful people, a people of praise. This should be an ever-present reality in our Christian life. 1 Chronicles 16.34 Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5 Do not be drunk with wine. This is verse 18. That is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always in. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's pretty much what we're doing tonight. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts. That's a state of mind, really, for the Christian. Whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, I read these three verses particularly. What are the three things here that cause us to be thankful? In these three verses that I've just read, one from the Old Testament, two from the New, there are three things that will cause a believer to be thankful. The first one in 1 Chronicles is that his loving kindness is everlasting. The loving kindness of God. The second thing is being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5. And the third thing is being filled with the word of God in Colossians 3. These are the things that will lead to thanksgiving. If you are not feeling like giving thanks, you are not feeling like praising the Lord, there is a 
fair chance you have not meditated on the glorious wonders of his loving kindness, you are not, have not been walking in line with the Spirit, and you have not filled your heart and your mind with the word of God. We also see a future vision for a worshipping and thankful people in the word of God. Right in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 15, it says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sit on their throne before God, they fell on their faces and they worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So even as we move into the heavenly realm, we see God's people are still giving thanks. And what does that tell you about how great God is? Notice in the first verse, it says, I'll give you thanks to the Lord with all my heart. That's a very, those three words, all my heart. That is a crucial phrase. The danger of half-heartedness is often seen in the Bible. We've just gone through the whole of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and 1 Sue Chronicles. Let me just read to you a typical introduction. It happens about 10 times throughout these books. 2 Chronicles 25 begins like this. Amaziah was 25 years when he became king. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. Verse 2, it says, He did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. You see, it's very possible to do some stuff right, but yet still be half-hearted in what we do. How many of us, I wonder, do things half-heartedly? I know I do in many, many, many ways. My wife actually calls me half-job Tom on occasion. Now, it's more referring to things like tidying and that sort of stuff. But the same sort of thing applies to our spiritual life. How many half-hearted? Elsewhere in the New Testament, the phrase double-minded is very similar to half-hearted. We sit in the pews, we do just enough to maintain a Christian life, so to speak, but yet we miss ourselves of the joy and the thanksgiving. And the reason for this is generally, it doesn't necessarily have to be sin or anything nefarious in your life. It can just be that your head is too wrapped up with something else that you don't really give we have the motivation to go any deeper and concentrate on the Lord. We all fall into these sorts of patterns at various points in our life. And the way to get out of them are those verses I just read. Dwelling on the loving kindness of the Lord, being filled and controlled by the Spirit of God, and feeding on his word. The Lord commands us to love him with our whole heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Let me read to you from Joshua chapter 14. This is when Moses is, when Joshua, sorry, is thinking back about the call. Joshua chapter 14, verse 7 to 9. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. I brought him back a report according to my convictions. And you remember the story. There was only two of them, Joshua and Caleb. They brought back a positive report. The rest were fearful because of the giants in the land, and they gave back a negative report. But look what it says at the end of verse 8. My fellow Israelites who went up with me made the, the hearts of the people melt. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So that on that day Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So we, we need, if we feel like we're being half-hearted in our walk with the Lord, we bring it to him and we let him deal with us. He then says... In, back in Psalm 9 now, I will tell of your wonders. We need to recount the things that God has blessed us with. We can, that can also be things that he's done personally in our life, things that have happened through the scriptures. Uh, there's many different things. But 
one thing, whenever I see this verse taught on a lot of the commentaries I read, people always think this is about giving a list of temporal sort of victories, like, thank you, God, for giving me the new job, thank you for this situation that worked out, for introducing me, all these sorts of different things, and there's nothing wrong with that, I'm not diminishing it at all. But I can just tell you now, there will be times in your life when you cannot pinpoint a specific area where God is making himself known in that very obvious way, like a fulfillment answer to prayer. There will be times when you don't feel that. So how do you apply and make this happen when you don't have anything like that? And I believe in that, as a Christian, we need to make sure that when we're telling of the wonders of God, we also include the spiritual blessings that he's given us. He has blessed us with every blessing in the spiritual places. He sealed us with the Spirit until the day of redemption. On and on, Ephesians 1 lists all of them for you. They are the things that will get us through those times, and then as we walk with the Lord, we will have other things to add with it. Sing praise. He says, I will tell of your wonders. He goes on to say that he will sing praise. Praise is obviously a vital element to the Christian life. I know we're all feeling it, not being able to sing to our heart's content, or for me to sort of quietly monotone my way through songs but I still enjoy doing that revivals have always been born in song songs communicate ideas they teach doctrine they open the hearts they lift the spirit on and on music is powerful singing praise is powerful let's read verse 3 when my enemies turn back they stumble and perish before you for you have maintained my just cause you have sat on the throne judging righteously you have rebuked the nations, you have destroyed the wicked, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities, the very memory of them has perished. So David here really gives reasons for why he's starting off praising the Lord like this, and it's because God has righteously judged the wicked, his enemies at this time. And this is, a, again, a sobering reminder that God does oppose those who reject him. And their future will be set by that choice. Let's just go on and read verse 7, 7 to 10. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So in stark contrast now to those whose names will be blotted out forever, the name of the Lord will abide forever. And he will be ruling and he will be judging from his eternal throne. Now we know as believers, New Testament, New Covenant believers, that this ultimately has its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you Acts 17. Notice the phrase, I'll highlight it as we go through. It comes from this psalm. Acts 17 verse 30 to 31 reads like this. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Now listen. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. That's a direct quotation from Psalm 9 that we just read there. But then it says, when you read it in the psalm, you are generally thinking about Yahweh, God the Father, and that's how the Jewish people would have understood it. But when you read it here in Acts, look what it goes on to say. He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Obviously, speaking of Jesus Christ here. So Christ is the one who will judge. All judgment has been given unto the Son. And because of this righteous judgment, it says in Psalm 9 that he will be a stronghold to those who need it, the oppressed. 
Now, when we talk about a stronghold, we're talking about a refuge, a fortress, you could say it could be translated. And God as a stronghold is a, a theme, again, that we're going to find all throughout the Psalms. When David was fleeing Saul, the place that he hid in the caves in En Gedi, it's always described as a stronghold. So it's a place of safety and protection, a fortress. But obviously David here is obviously announcing, yes, there are physical strongholds, but the Lord is to be the ultimate stronghold. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, very famous verse. The righteous run into it and is safe. Very similar to Psalm 9, the theme that we've got here. But why is it similar? In both of these verses, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the one I just read from Psalm 9, those who know your name will put their trust in you. And this is a very important thing for us. I don't want to skip over this. Do we know God? Now, you may all think, yes, of course we know God. But do we want to know God more? And I'm not saying this is not knowing about God, this is not hearing a sermon necessarily about him or reading something or having heard and know there is more to God. This is directly relational to you and your relationship. It's an intimate uh, description that we have here because it's speaking of all of God's character, his attributes that are associated and reveal his name to us. Many a saint has been revived from a place of apathy uh, and regularity in their faith by studying the names of God. I can guarantee you that will be a transforming thing in your faith if you do that. There are many good devotionals on this. F.B. Meyer said it like this. Men complain of their little faith. The remedy is in their own hands. Let them set themselves to know God. But for all this, you must make time. You cannot know a friend from hurried interviews, much less God. So you must steep yourself in deep long thoughts of his nearness and his love. The names of God are windows through which his character is seen, and we should expect them to be nothing less. They are divine revelation. They communicate vital parts of himself to us. It's a bit of a long quote, but it's worth reading here. This is Charles Spurgeon's comment on this exact verse. He says, Ignorance is worst when it amounts to the ignorance of God, and knowledge is best when it exercises itself upon the name of God. This most excellent knowledge leads to the most excellent grace of faith. Oh, to learn more of the attributes and character of God. Unbelief, that night bird, cannot live in the light of divine knowledge. It flies before the sun of God's great gracious name. If we read this verse literally, there is no doubt a glorious fullness of assurance in the name of God. By knowing his name is also meant an experiential acquaintance with his attributes which are every one of them anchors to hold the soul from drifting in times of peril. The Lord may hide his face for a season from his people, but he has never utterly, finally, really, or angrily forsaken them that seek him. Let the poor seekers draw comfort from this fact, and let the finders rejoice yet more exceedingly. For what must be the Lord's faithfulness to those who find him to be so gracious and those who seek his face. The names of God inspire trust. Now, Spurgeon had a way with words, but that's basically a good summation of this entire psalm. The names tell us that he is the most high God. El Elyon, they say in Hebrew. This means God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Elohim is another one. He's the creator God, the powerful creator God. Yahweh, of course, the covenant-keeping God. And there's so many names. Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. El Shaddai, the almighty God. El Olam, the eternal, unchanging God. Jehovah Shammah, the God who is there. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who will provide. That comes from Genesis 22. Remember when Abraham was sacrificing his son Isaac and he said no in the whole story. And then the text says that the Lord will provide a sacrifice. 
as went on to become a name of God, the Lord will provide. His name is good. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope, for your name is good, Psalm 52. We must never forget that. His name is great. His name is majestic. His name is glorious. His name is holy. Remember when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, what was the first thing he taught them? Hallowed be your name. May your name be sanctified, is what that really means. Set apart, treated as holy, because it is holy. His name is above everything else. There's only one thing that's magnified in accordance with his name, and that is his word. And the two things are very much related. Once we recognise his name, once we know him in that way, we must respond to his name. The Bible says that we should praise his name. It says that we should honour his name, not swear falsely on his name. We should call on his name, proclaim his name, trust his name, and ultimately love his name. Isaiah 56 verse 6 says, To love the name of the Lord and to worship him. And that is a summary of the believer's life. Now, remember, all of these things are wrapped up in the person of Christ again. Philippians 2 verse 9 to 10, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. All of those names that we've lifted, lifted the name of Yeshua, the name of Jesus Christ, is the best name we could ever hope to trust in. When we seek his name, you will grow in your faith. Your hope will be lifted up. You will grow in courage. Your worship will be enriched. You will grow and know the peace of God in the midst of trials. You will know the power of God in your life. You will know wisdom and you will know joy. This is the name of God. Let's carry on. Verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell you of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught, the Lord has made himself known, he has executed judgment in the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. Basically the psalmist now is asking for God's grace in defence from the attack of his enemies and he commits to singing publicly to the praises of God when God vindicates him. Let's just read, read a few more verses and we'll finish the psalm off. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish. Arise, O Lord, and do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. The psalmist now contrasts the end of the wicked with the, uh, the end of the oppressed and the needy. And the oppressed and the needy is really a euphemism for those who are uh, thinking of God, recalling God, uh, those who know him at this time. And he says, arise. And the psalmist asks God to remind the nations of their mortality. And this will be done really in the fact that God is the one who will ultimately judge them. So that is Psalm 9. My takeaway from Psalm 9 is knowing the name of God and singing his praises. If I could give you a summary, I'd say take that away from that psalm. Let's just go straight into Psalm 10, because like I say, they are connected in many ways. C.S. Lewis once said that reading Psalm 10 is like throwing open the door of an oven that is set up to 500 degrees. He was right about that. You immediately get hit full in the face with the heat of the psalmist's fury. 
This psalm, we look at the problem of the hiddenness of God. Why is God silent? This is a question that all of us ask at various times. The psalmists ask it a lot. Job asked it. The saints ask it. It's a question that we need to think about. We pray, but nothing happens. We seek him, but it seems like there's no doors opening and he is not there. We wonder whether our lives are really any different to the non-believer, except we have an intellectual faith. We can be tricked into sort of thinking like that. But David in this psalm gives us courage. He, he is experiencing the same issue. He is asking, why is God letting the wicked prosper? He's looking at the world. He's asking, where is justice? Why are all these terrible things happening and you're not uh, coming to the defense of your people? And he's very frustrated about it. You can feel it as, he, as we're going to read through it in a minute. And I just say, it's okay to be frustrated. We see that in the Psalms all the time. People are frustrated with God. If you read a lot of the sort of the early Jewish writings, you'll find huge sections of people just bringing complaint to God and wrestling with God, sort of after, like Jacob, Jacob did in that sense. And this is, it's, it's okay to do that if you do it reverently, obviously, and, and the Lord will meet you there. Let's, let's read, let's just read the first two verses. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. So we have these two questions. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? And why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? These are the real problems of theodicy in some respects. We call this the hiddenness of God. Now let's just read, I'm going to just read the big chunk of it now and then I'll make some application. Verse 3, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. Now notice just how descriptive he is here of the wicked. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villagers. In the hiding places he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He, he catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to God to himself, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. Now this is a graphic description of the works of the ungodly, of the wicked person that we call in the Bible. Uh, he acts and he lives as if there is no God, there is no coming judgment. And to the observer, it maybe seems like, oh, maybe God is not judging. This is the problem that David, the psalmist here, is wrestling with. He goes on, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why is the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. See, he wants God to act. He wants God to break the power of the wicked people. But verse 14, notice it says, you have seen it. So the psalmist here makes a declaration. It may seem like God is absent from this picture, but God is not absent. God sees all. He goes on, verse 16. 
The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. As the sovereign king, the psalmist is still confident that he has heard and seen. Now we must remember this too. In times of silence, God sees and God hears. God is never absent in that sense. He may be silent for a time, but he is never absent. And he will strengthen your heart if you incline your ear to hear him. So what do we do? Now we see this play out in a national way. The psalmist here is really focusing on uh, a more sort of involving other nations and enemies and things like that. I want to just focus in on the, the personal aspect of this. What do we do when God is silent? When we're maybe in a patch where we're not hearing from God, we don't have direction from God specifically, what do we do? The Bible simply says, we wait for the Lord. This is why one of the fruits of the spirits is patience, long-suffering, it's called. We wait for the Lord. Now, many of you who know me, you know I love to read people's Bible notes, devotional notes. I have a whole collection of things that I've uh, collected over the years. I want to just read to you one that is a comment on Psalm 27, actually, but it's a very similar theme to this verse. And for me, it really beautifully illustrates this whole problem and the believer's response to the hiddenness of God, to those times when you just are not meeting with the Lord in that intimate way that maybe you once did when you were first saved, maybe you did when you were you know, doing missions or those sorts of things. But this is what we have. So let me just read to you the text of Psalm 27. It just says this. This is David again. So it's, Do not deliver me over the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such breathe out violence. So it's a very similar complaint. He's complaining against his adversaries that are trying to persecute him. He says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. So it's his trust and faith, his longing, that he knew he would see the Lord that got him through that. Uh, Then verse 14, it says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Now the devotional notes that I saw next to this verse, they simply said this. The first was just a date, a time, and it said this. As you've been getting up early and seeking God, you have found not his face, but silence. This is the problem. This is like what the psalmist is complaining about. I'm not hearing, seeing, or meeting with you. But then by this verse, it also says, this is a promise. This verse is a promise that you will see his goodness and his face if you wait on them with patience. So that's a saint going through the same sort of thought process of David here. Now, what I love about this little devotion that I found is that a little bit under this, there's another note, and the date is like a month later. And it says this, You cried with joy during your time in the morning with the Lord because of his great presence. Patience and surrender works. God is good. And for me, that just typifies so beautifully uh, what the saints should be doing in these times. God is not silent. God sees, God's here, and he will come to the need of his saints. Now, we're going to jump straight into Psalm 11. I love Psalm 11, so I don't want to rush this too much, but it's it's quite a short psalm. It's only seven verses. So let's read the whole thing, and then there's a few verses I really want to just focus in on uh, as we go through this. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? 
For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I'd say highlight that verse if you have it. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. So really we have a situation here where David seems to be responding to some counsellors. Uh, who wanted him to hide in a physical stronghold, flee to the mountains as a bird. Very, you know, this is the, sort of reminds me slightly of the counsellors of Job. He replied to them that really the Lord is the stronghold. That's where he wants to hide. And then in verse 3 we have, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, this is a very famous verse here. You'll see it in many different ministries use it. I'll explain uh, in a little bit. David's faint-hearted counsellors evidently felt that the very foundations of their nation were in danger so for them it would have been the mosaic law the temple cult and all these sorts of things the institutions of judaism but we can make a very good application to many societies around the world today many faint-hearted people believe and behave similarly when they see the foundational elements of our society coming under attack so we need to talk about foundations a little bit I'm very familiar with this verse because you see it a lot in creation ministries. I'm a speaker with Creation Ministries International. One of the verses they always speak about is Psalm 11, verse 3, because it talks about the foundations. And most people assume that creation ministry is about science. It's about the creation evolution debate. That's actually a secondary part of it. The primary purpose that these ministries will tell you is that they are biblical authority upholding ministries. And they, and they adhere to the view of creation that they do because that is what is clearly taught in the Bible. And if you take away from the authority of the Bible, then your foundations are destroyed. And they will go through and show you a lot of the things. Genesis is foundational for the whole of the Bible. In fact, uh, most doctrines that we know have their roots in the book of Genesis. From marriage and clothing, the seven-day week, the atonement, sacrifice, redemption, the promise of the Messiah. All of these things come from the first few chapters of Genesis, the foundation of all Christian doctrine. And that's why uh, you use it in that ministry. Now, I would say we are witnessing a sort of undoing of our foundations in the Western world. Historically, we have our foundations have been the Judeo-Christian heritage laws, our ethics, our legal institutions, our education, our charitable services, all of these things grew out of an overt Christian history. And it's easy to panic as Christians as we see that being undone, as we see secularism rising, faith being pushed to the side, being marginalised, being privatised, you could say, in that sense. And then we see because of that, we see a rise in all the things that the Bible tells us will be a sign of the last days when people do not seek him, when they're, when they're wicked, like we read in Psalm 9, actually. But what do we do in times like this? We don't despair. We need to be like Ezra. Remember, we've just studied Ezra. What did he do? He gathered up some faithful men, he took them back to Jerusalem, and he rebuilt the foundations. So rather than despairing, rather than thinking, oh, I wish it was like the glory days, that's a really a romantic myth. The glory days were not necessarily better. God is still with us now. We need to rebuild the foundation. But the only way we can do that is by understanding what the ultimate foundation is. And this is, again, it's the word of God. 
You see, so we need men and women who will pick up the sword and the spade, who are willing to rebuild the scaffolding that was built upon the foundation, but also understand and affirm that the very foundation is the word of God, and only the word of God is a foundation that can stand, even if that goes against what the culture says. Remember the words of Jesus, I love this, Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Notice, you've got to hear, you've got to act. Like we said, it's not just about hearing, you've got to act. Verse 25, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Very famous story, the wise and foolish man. Built his house on the sand, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. That is ultimately the two foundations we have, man's opinion or God's word. Anything that is built on man's opinion will ultimately one day fall. That's not to say everything is going to be wrong necessarily, but when we're contrasting it with the word of God, it's kind of, that's what we're saying. It's not a foundation that can hold a society. Many people have tried to build societies, and you see it around the world today, that are based on a specific rejection of the word of God. We have regimes all over the world today that are overtly atheistic. We just saw, didn't we, I don't know if any of you saw the Portland riots where they were burning Bibles in the streets, just in our world in America, of all places. This this is very much a real issue for us today. We need to understand that there is one true foundation, and even in times where we may not feel like it, we need to see the world through God's eyes. It's a spiritual reality that we have in this world. God will come, God will judge, but God will also be that strong tower and refuge for the righteous. In the last four verses of this psalm, uh, David really gives his response to what we may call the prophets of doom, these people who are counselling him to run and terrified that everything's fallen apart. And I love the way he answers them. He basically says this, The Lord is in his holy temple, and the Lord's throne is in heaven. The Lord is holy, and the Lord is on the throne. The wicked will be judged. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness, and the upright will behold his face. And as we look around at a world that may worry us, that may, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, we can get unsettled. We see people walking the wrong way. We see people closing their eyes to the Lord in parts of the world. Again, the Spirit is still working mightily in many parts of the world. God is still working in our land. The righteous are being persecuted. Things spiral. We don't know what's going on. However, we must look through the eyes of faith. The mark of a true mature believer is that even in the midst of these sorts of things, we can confidently assert, like David did here, that the Lord is on his throne. And we must make no mistake about that. Therefore, we fear not and we take refuge in him and we behold his face. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.